Well, welcome back. We're going to get through Chapter 3 here today. Um, I know we did cover the first two verses last time, but this week uh, we're going to pick up with verse 3, but I want to read the first couple of verses just to keep the context here as well. Also, just want to just remind you as well, and just give a thanks to Daniel Joseph of Corner Fringe Ministries. Uh, really, I've, I've studied his Hebrew study, and that's really kind of what I'm taking and just relaying to you. And so this is not my original stuff. It, it's just scripture. But I think he did a great job of trying to basically put the old and the new together and, and let the context of this book speak. And uh, so hopefully you're blessed by it uh, like I was blessed. But like I said, let's pick up here in Hebrews 3.1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. And so we see that there Moses was being compared to Christ, that Christ was going to be like Moses because it was you know, said in the Old Testament, prophesied that there would be one like Moses that would come. And the author here is saying, this is the one, Jesus is. But now, in verse 3, we're going to pick up and it's going to begin to contrast the differences between Jesus, Yeshua, and Moses. And so it says this, For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In other words, this one being Jesus inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. I mean, if you think about it, it was God who created Moses, right? And not only that, it says, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now, clearly he's talking about Jesus here, and so once more he's saying Jesus is God, rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so, Last week, we, we only scratched the surface as we compared Jesus to Moses. But like I said, now we're seeing Jesus is even greater than Moses. But I want you to understand the, the, the implications of what the author is writing here. If you would have put yourself in the shoes of any Jew back at this time, there was no one greater than Moses. I mean, even the Pharisees, it says that you know they sit in Moses' seat Moses and Abraham were the two greatest of all people. And so for this author to be saying that Jesus is greater than Moses, this is huge. When you realize how revered Moses was, then this was going to be earth-shattering to the listeners, to the readers of this book at this time. And uh, the author of Hebrews... Um, you know, like I said, I think it's probably Paul, but whoever it is, he's obsessed with the nature of who Yeshua Jesus is. You know, we saw in earlier chapters he was greater than the angels. We saw that he clearly was God, and now he's saying he's greater than Moses. But the difference is, is Moses failed. Jesus didn't. You see, Moses never got to go into the promised land, or at least lead the people into the promised land. He did later uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew, we do see in chapter 20 or 17, uh, wherever that is, that he does indeed get to uh, go into the promised land, but not leading the people. 
But you see, that is exactly what Jesus does, is he does bring Israel into their promised land through the Messiah, through himself, through Jesus Christ. So, uh, he who builds the house, I just kind of want to focus on that as we look here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. It says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Clearly, this is a messianic text, a prophecy. Uh, I'd say all theologians would agree. And it goes on, Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So Zechariah is telling us that it's Yeshua that builds the house, just like there in Hebrews 1.3. And that house, though, isn't just the world, all of creation, Moses. He's talking about the temple of the Lord. And what is the temple of the Lord? We're not just talking about the tabernacle of the Old Testament. We're talking about us. We are now that temple, and we'll talk about that. But uh, that's kind of what Hebrews 1.3 is getting at here. It says that he will also bear the glory. And this is what it says here in verse 13. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule. Remember the priests, they would never sit down. Priests, uh, they had a job to do. But this one is going to finish the job, bear the glory, and then be done. He's going to join the two offices of king and priest. All right, that's how he will uh, accomplish what uh, the salvation needs to be. That he will be our king, he will be our priest, he is our prophet. He he unites all of those things together. When we read uh, in verse three, then, for this one has been counted worthy of more than glory than Moses, and as much as he who built the house. Going back there, look what Matthew twelve six says. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Once more, put yourself in the first century. And for a guy to be saying this, you'd think he was nuts. He'd be, ha he'd be out of his mind. There was nothing greater than the temple. Keep in mind, when this is being written, the temple is still there. The temple is in operation. The Jews that don't know Jesus are still making sacrifices sin offerings, guilt offerings, are doing all of these things. And here, this guy is coming and saying, you are the one, unless you're the one that builds the house, okay, you, you have no honor, ultimately. But he who builds the house, he has more honor than the house. But God is saying there is no one greater than the temple. Well, we know that uh, Jesus was talking about his body being the temple later, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, that type of thing. And so uh, when he says there's one greater than the temple, he's talking about himself. And that would have rocked the listeners here in Hebrews. He who built the house has more honor than the house. God's the one who built the temple. He's built us. In verse 4, it goes on and it says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God, rejoicing the hope firm to the end. So again, like I said, now he's saying this builder is God, and in essence then, Jesus is God. 
goes on in verse 5 and says, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So, we see that Jesus is this great guy. He's the, the builder. You know, it's better than the house, better than the temple, the greatest thing that they could even imagine. But now it's saying that Moses was a servant. Okay, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. But how does that contrast to Jesus? Okay, it says, but Christ is a son He's a son over his own house. So there's that contrast, whereas Moses is not as good. He's only a servant, but God is a son. Then it says, we are the house of God. Okay, whose house? We are. Now, but there's a condition to that. Okay, if. That's a pretty big word. Those two letters make a very important statement. <coughs> Excuse me. If we hold fast the confidence in the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, just as far as us being this house, I want to give a couple of scripture verses that talk about this again. But remember, Christ is better because he's a son over his own house. What is this house? We could say the temple. But... Now he's saying that temple, it says whose house we are. We are that temple. If, again, there's a condition. We'll get to that later. But look at this in Ephesians 2.19. Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of God's household. He's a son in the house, and we're part of that house. 1 Timothy 3.14, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So clearly we're seeing we are the temple. We are his house. Okay, We just saw in Hebrews uh, speaking to Jewish listeners. Okay, But now in Timothy, he's speaking to Gentiles. Likewise, he's going to be speaking to Gentiles here in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. So, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Again, we see this very big, this if, if anyone defiles the temple of God, that means you're the body of you are the body of Christ, you are the temple. If you defile that body, if you're going to live in unholiness, if you're going to live against the commandments of God, he says God will destroy him. For the temple of God is to be holy. And that was part of what we see throughout the whole Old Testament is God was had all these rules and things to make sure that that the temple was treated as holy, that it not just treated but it was holy. And now that Christ lives in us, how much more should we be holy? And as I said, in Ephesians, he was talking here often to, to the Jews and Hebrews, but now he's talking to the, Jew, uh, the Gentile church, saying the same thing. 
So you might be aware of a, something called a dual covenant theology. It basically says that there was a covenant for the Jew, and then there's a covenant for the Gentile. I'll tell you what, there is nothing more heretical and unscriptural than dual covenant theology. Um, we may take a look at that later in great detail and just use that as the topic and look at scriptures that will just blow that out of the water. But for now, I want you to see this. Both Jew and Gentile are now what? The temple, the house. We are one. We are united. There is no dual covenant. As a matter of fact, we are grafted in to the covenant that was given to the Jew. And when the Lord comes back, he's not coming back for a foreign bride. He's coming back for his own. And if we have not been grafted in to that Jewish covenant, you're not going. It's that simple. For salvation is of the Jews, Jesus even said to that Samaritan woman at the well. So, let's look at this if again, because it is very consistent with Scripture all throughout. The church doesn't like to talk about these if statements, because that seems to be conditional, and we hear over and over, it's by grace we've been saved, it's by grace we've been saved, not by works. Hey, I agree 100% with that verse, but I think we've taken it out of context to where there is nothing on our part for salvation. That's not what it's saying. There is a part of ours on salvation. Now, I know Jesus did it all, so that might seem kind of like a contradiction. But there is a lot of ifs here, conditions throughout all of Scripture, old and new. Let's look at Romans 11.22. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. We're in the New Testament here, and he's saying, don't forget the severity of God on those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. You see, the severity of, the severity of God is a con big conditional if there. If you don't continue in his goodness, you will be in his severity. See, the church doesn't want to talk about conditions. They don't want to talk about God's severity we're not supposed to fear God. We're just supposed to love him, and he's supposed to be our best friend, our great pal, and hey, Father, hey, buddy, how you doing today? No, we are to fear God. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. We are to fear him as we fear a loving father. Tell you what, growing up, I had fear for my father that if I disobeyed him, I'd be in trouble. But yet I had no questions about my love, and even it was an unconditional love that my father had for me. But there was still a healthy fear. And fear kept me on the straight and narrow many times. And that's what Scripture says it's supposed to do for us. Colossians 1.21 It says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, hey, that's us Gentiles, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless. Now notice he's not going to present you as this sinner and as this wicked, evil-loving person. No, he presents you as holy and blameless. Now how does he do that? Just because, hey, I'm a Christian and now I'm holy because I'm a Christian? No. It says, and above reproach in his sight. 
a lot of people will stop right there. But this same Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, there's more to that chapter. It goes to verse 23. It says, if, okay, you're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if, it's a big if, indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. See, it was going so well there in verses uh, 21 and 22. You know, we're justified through Christ, faith alone, grace alone. And then he had to continue on and say, if. You see, there are conditions to salvation. And we're living in a society that is telling us that it is by grace only and grace is free. There's no consequence to it. There's no commitment to it. It's just something that it's there. And then you can go live your life however you want to live your life. You can go party. You can go have premarital sex. You can live with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because you've said a prayer. Guys, that's not the biblical Christianity. It never was the Christianity of Scripture. Okay? What happens is when you become a believer, and we're going to see more scriptures of this later, God gives you the Holy Spirit and the power to obey Him. And He's going to give you an understanding of the law of God that you are going to love it. It's going to be in your heart. And you're going to want to obey Him. You won't be able to do it all the time. And when you don't, you're forgiven. But if you break the laws and you break those commandments, you're going to hate it. You're going you're gonna to feel bad about it. But you're going to be forgiven. You see, I don't want to break God's commands. That's what the scriptures say, Paul. You know, we looked at this before a few weeks back. If I do what I don't want to do, okay? If you have a want and you don't care that you're sinning against God, I'm telling you right now, I don't think you have faith. You don't have the grace of God. Let me give you some more examples here on this next slide because... Um, Paul is giving us here, whoever the author is, an anchor statement to prevent us from rebelling. And cheap grace uh, that is so prevalent in the churches today is not what is supported in Scripture. Deuteronomy 28.9, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. Okay, That sounds like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. See that if? There was a condition to God's holiness and to, to his uh, offering that forgiveness to you. So it looks like Paul maybe got these if statements from the Old Testament because it sounds just like what we're reading here in Hebrews. Okay, here's Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. Again, sounds like New Testament. But it says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. I got news for you guys. This is the gospel, and it is no different than the gospel message in the New Testament. No different at all. Okay, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but those were Old Testament verses. Guys, remember what Jesus says? These are the scriptures that testify about him. There isn't a different gospel. Look in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. 
we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Okay, if this is true, then would not the opposite also be true? If we do not walk in the light as Jesus in the light, then you do not have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ does not cleanse you from all sin? You see, this is this if, it's everywhere in Scripture, just not in the churches today. If we walk rightly, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us. You see, that repentance comes before righteousness. We can look here at Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. So just moving on here in, this, in, in verse 7, it's saying, it, it's quoting Psalm 95, first of all. And I like what he does here because in chapter 3 and 4, he's going to quote this psalm five times. Later in chapter 4, he's going to talk about it basically in, in uh, that it was David's words because this is a psalm of David. But before, to introduce this psalm, he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. In other words, he's saying that Psalm 95 isn't just, you know, some man named David's words, but this is coming from the Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of very a very important part to, to point out that when he's introducing it, he's telling us that this is God's word. But it says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. What, what, what rebellion is he talking about in the day of the trial or trial in the wilderness? Well, there were a lot of rebellions that took place in the, the, where the Israel all through the wilderness. Uh, we see Korah's rebellion. We see the golden calf. Uh, we'll talk about some of those things, but first, let's look here at Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. Just like what Peter is going to say here, that God's word is not the word of men. That's what Paul was saying, or whoever here in Hebrews saying that this is the, from the Holy Spirit. Psalm ninety-five it says, "No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy." Psalm 35, never came by the will of man. But holy men of God, like David, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's just a good verse to kind of reflect that. But let's go back to this verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Why is he quoting the Old Testament? I thought we were in a New, new Testament, a new era. No, it's because the old is speaking about the new. And so we have to get this idea out of our heads that the old is something that is null and void. Okay, where is this coming from? Okay, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice. Well, he's quoting the Torah. Deuteronomy 26, verse 16 says this. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart, and with all your soul. So notice, there's a profession of faith, right? This day the Lord your God commands you. He commands, and now there's a profession. Today you have proclaimed, there's your profession, the Lord to be your God, in that you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. 
So, in verse 16, the Lord gives you a command. In verse 17, the people profess or proclaim that they will do it. Today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people then. Can you see how that works? Okay, today, there's a command, command to obey, then they profess their faith, and then today you become God's special people. In Acts 17, verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to confess, to, to profess their faith in him. And when you do that, what happens? God proclaims you to be his special people. And that's the same structure that we're seeing here in Hebrews, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It isn't just, hey, Jesus died on the cross. Do you believe that mentally? Oh, great. You mentally believe that? Now go live your life. You're saved. You said a prayer. No, there are actions. A tree will be judged by its fruit. Joshua 24 verse 15 says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which are your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, there was a command. Choose. You need to choose this day. Don't wait till tomorrow, but this day. And a profession then is to serve. They say, we will serve the Lord. And when Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve, God says, yes, then you are my special people. So again, this is just that pattern that we see. A command, and then a profession, and then an acceptance. So, when Hebrews 3.7 is telling us today, we see that all throughout, choose for yourselves this day, today, whom you will serve. That's what he's saying. Moving on to verse 8. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. In other words, there was a command. There was a profession they did not follow. They did not know his ways. They tested God, and therefore they don't enter rest. I mean, there are so many aspects. I told you we'd come back to this as in the rebellion. Do you remember the manna? It wasn't long. They, they come out of Egypt. God gives them manna, and he says you can collect some every day, but don't collect any on the Sabbath. But on the day before, on Friday, you're going to get twice as much, so you collect twice as much so that you can have it for the Sabbath. But sure enough, somebody goes out and they try and find it, and then there's maggots on it. We can see the golden calf. Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes down, and the people had had Aaron make this golden calf in, in the rebellion there. Why is that? Well, verse 9 explains. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
in the day of trial in the wilderness. What was going on? It says, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my work for 40 years. Okay? They were testing God. And in other words, they were they were kind of pushing him to the edge. But really, the opposite was happening. God was testing them to see if they would follow his rules. And you know what? It, it, when we look at the Ten Commandments, it's kind of important to understand when they come about. Are they before God chooses and delivers them or after God chooses and delivers them? It's after, isn't it? You see, God chose Israel to be their people. God delivers them from Egypt. And by the way, with the greatest gospel picture of all, the Passover lamb. And so the blood was put over the house. The angel of death passed over them. God delivers them, saves them. There's a salvation picture. They go through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us it is. And then the commandments are given. Why? To test them to see whether they love God with their whole heart, mind, and soul. Isn't that the exact same thing, the same structure we see in the New Testament? That Jesus Christ dies on the cross for us. Okay, we even have baptism. And, but then he, there is a test. Do you really love me? Because he says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, like you say you do, like you profess you do, then obey my commands. It's pretty simple. The same thing. Not to prove or to earn salvation. He says, I've already given you that salvation. Now, I want you to follow me because I saved you. That's the, the proper understanding of the law under the new covenant. Faith is the power source for obedience. Okay, I could never obey God without Jesus Christ. But because I have faith in him, he gives me the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then empowers me to obey his commands. Oh yeah, I live in the flesh at times and I fail. But I'm still a forgiven saint because of Jesus. Because I have faith in him. But if I'm living in disobedience, I don't have faith if I'm living in willful disobedience. So how much faith do you have? You know, maybe that's a question to ask. How are you living out your faith to God? Are you praying to him like it really matters? Like you really want to talk to him? Or are you praying for him as just kind of maybe a magic eight ball or a little genie when you need him? Are you, are you reading your Bible? Are you searching to know him so that you would know him more and therefore love him more? Or is TV or Facebook a little bit more important to you? You see, I think that this is kind of what it's saying. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts and, and go off and do all your own things in this world when God has placed you on this earth for a purpose, to know him, to love him, and to share him with others. Because if you do, and all you're doing with your life is Facebook and TV, and you're not studying these scriptures, you're not praying to God, you're not loving people and sharing the gospel with them, you're just like these people in the wilderness testing God. 
And it says like there in verse 10, therefore I was angry with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. Their heart isn't for me. Okay, remember Jeremiah? He says these people they 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 worship me with their heart or their their uh, mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Just because somebody goes to church and says a prayer and says a song or sings a song, doesn't mean that they have a heart for God. You want to know if somebody has a heart for God? Look at the fruit coming out of their life that has been produced by their faith. If they don't have fruit. I doubt they have faith. And therefore it says. They know, not, they know not my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Basically saying, they're going to hell. So that's how serious this is. Let me give you some other examples. Numbers 14, verse 22. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Remember, these are people who went through the Passover. These are people who were saved and delivered by God. And they said, all right, I'm delivered. Now I'm God's. I'm going to live my life the way I want. And they tested God that way. That's why God says, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When you disobey God, you're rejecting him, and you're not going to see that promised land. Not because you haven't earned it, but because you don't have faith. You've got Jesus' words on your lips, but not Jesus in your heart. And so this is why Corinthians as well tells us, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. We can't just say, well, I go to church, so I'm a Christian. That's not the case. We know that just like in the Old Testament, there was a condition, a big if. Okay, These people had seen his glory. They saw his deliverance, but then they went and they followed the evil desires of their own heart. They lived the life that they wanted to live. They worshiped God the way they wanted to worship him. Take the, uh, Exodus 32 as an example. The golden calf. Were they worshiping some pagan god? Not at all. Go read that carefully. Aaron says, this, these are the gods, or this is the God that led you out of Egypt. This is, and it says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, this is Yahweh who led you out of Egypt. This golden calf is Yahweh. And so they had a feast to Yahweh, but they weren't worshiping God the way God told them to be worshipped or to worship him. They were deciding we want to worship God how we want to worship Him. We'll decide on what day. We'll decide how we're going to worship Him. We want a calf. We want to do it in some form, an idol. That's how we want to do it. So we'll worship God still, but in our own way. Well, you saw what that was. That was rebellion. Let's move on to verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I love this. We are to exhort one another, plead with one another to hear God's word on a daily basis. Okay? Uh, beware 
Those are strong words. Beware. This isn't, oh, by the way. This is beware. Because otherwise your evil heart of unbelief is going to cause you to depart from God. You're going to just stray away. And let me tell you something. It's not just all of a sudden, you know, boom. I, okay, I don't believe in God today. It's a slow process. And that's why he says beware. Because there's just all these little things that are going to start leading you away. Therefore, exhort one another every day. Daily. Because we need that encouragement. We need to be reminded. And guys, if you don't have somebody in your life doing that, then that's all the more reason you should be in God's Word every day because God's Word will exhort you. When you read His Word on a daily basis, we can't fall asleep. You know, if we do, lest we fall away. We have to be intentional about our faith. But I think too many Christians think, okay, yeah, I go to church, so that makes me a Christian. Now I can go live my life. That's not being intentional about your faith on a daily basis. Being intentional is getting up every morning to make sure that you have an hour to read your scriptures, to pray with God. How many do that? I'll bet you we watch TV or on Facebook at least an hour a day. Are you in the Word? That's not being intentional if you're not saying, yes, I'm in the Word that amount of time. Okay? I bet we watch enough movies. I mean, my goodness, a new movie comes out, we're there. Okay, a new sermon out on podcast? A new Bible study? Yeah, maybe. Okay, so we have to think about these things. Are we being intentional to pray, to watch this Bible study that I'm even putting online? Are you sharing it with others, and are they watching it? We need to speak God's truth into the lives of, of all those around us and uh, on a daily basis to be intentional. You know, that's why so many things that I, uh, obedience is important. I'm intentional to obey because not I'm trying to earn my salvation, but I'm intentional in obeying God because I love him and I'm blessed by that. I'm blessed by the obedience let me give you another scriptural practical example of this in Acts chapter 14, verse 21. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So, they had preached the gospel, many believed, you got many disciples, and then they didn't just leave them, but they came back, strengthening them, exhorting them to continue in the faith, reminding them that, you know, hey, now that you're a Christian, everything is just going to go perfectly for you. It's going to be a wonderful, joy-filled life. Is that what he said? No, how did he exhort them to continue in the faith? saying we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Well, we don't hear that in the churches today, do we? That hard times will occur in my life? That God doesn't promise me a bed of roses and life of joy, peace, happiness, and money, and, you know, prosperity, gospel, all of those kind of things? Yeah, you see, the church doesn't like to talk about entering the kingdom of God through many tribulations. 
If anything, what we try to do is make sure that there aren't any tribulations, make sure that there are no hardships, make sure that we have no struggles and trials. But yet those are the things, the very things that draw us near to God, the very things that kill the flesh so that we can live in the Spirit. But the church is so accustomed to feeding the flesh that we do everything we can to avoid these tribulations. But yet here we see in Acts, Paul saying, we exhort them to continue in the faith, saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to give of ourselves. We're going to have to have an idea that we're to help others, not in it for us and what we get out of it. So many churches today, they'll take surveys to wonder, find out what do you want to receive in this church? What are you looking for? Guys, it doesn't matter what you're looking for. I don't care what you want in church. You ought to be there in church to give, to give of yourself and to give your worship and praise to the holy God of all creation. The God who is coming back to take some to heaven and to doom others to hell. A God that deserves our reverence, our fear, as well as our love, submission, and in our very life. Something to think about. Hebrews 3, continuing, verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ. Oh, there's that if again. Isn't that something? How many times that when you start looking for this, you're going to see it all over, that we can take that one verse in Ephesians, it's by grace you've been saved, period, and stop. Not by works. Okay, but why don't we take Ephesians in context of the whole book of Ephesians? Why don't we take it in context with the whole of the New Testament? Why don't we take the whole New Testament in context of the whole of the Bible itself? You see, we're partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. He's going back to that again. That if is a very different message in Hebrews than we get in modern Christianity. Okay, and it's the second time he's quoting this passage. Again, you know, you hear when something's mentioned twice, it's important. He's saying, don't fall away. Don't harden your hearts. We've got to exhort you. We need to, to remind you to keep striving. I think it's Timothy that talks about training, you know, that physical training has some value, okay? But godliness has value for eternal life. We are in training right now, and we should be striving. Rather than going to the gym to, to make sure that your physical body is healthy, are you taking the same amount of time to be in the Word to make sure that your spirit is healthy so that you don't harden your heart, but that you hear His voice? Let's go on to verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Okay, they heard the Word of God. They rebelled. Not much different than what's going on in, in Christianity today. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Weren't these all ones that were saved and delivered by God? through Moses, and yet churches are filled with people who have been saved by grace that are in the churches today. They've heard, 
And yet they're the ones rebelling. They're the ones that are still living with their boyfriends and girlfriends, living as if the blood of Christ had no effect, trampling on it. Verse 17, now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Wait a minute, what is this doing in the New Testament? God's angry with those who reject him, who don't obey him? Yeah, and this is New Testament. Do you want to test the Lord who hates workers of iniquity? Tell you what, that's exactly what's happening in the modern Christianity. Uh, you probably know of Andy Stanley, uh, the son of Charles Stanley. Uh, in some of my DVDs on creation, I have quotes of him and, and how he's uh, just denying a, a young earth creation and just some just heretical things that he's saying. Um, really, what he's saying is a very different message than what we're reading here in Hebrews. Uh, he has a message that you can listen to and read online. Why do Christians want to post the Ten Commandments and not the Sermon on the Mount? I, I, I want to show you basically what he's saying in this article is that you, the Ten Commandments are null and void. We can throw them out because Jesus replaced them with the Gospel. And I'm telling you, that is not anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, and I challenge anybody to show me where it is, and I can prove to you from the Bible that you're wrong. Let me show you here what he says. You've heard the story before. A group of Christians puts up a monument of the Ten Commandments in a public space or on government property. Someone says it violates the separation of church and state. The Christians say taking it down would violate their freedom of speech. There are some back and forth in court, and both sides say some not-so-great things about the other. Rinse and repeat. But how many times have you seen Christians trying to post the text of the Sermon on the Mount in a public place, or the all-encompassing commandment Jesus gave us? Now, first of all, <clears throat> you're going to see him say more, but I just I have to comment on this. Should we go and put the Sermon on the Mount somewhere? I say yes, because do you know that the Sermon on the Mount has a higher standard than the Ten Commandments do? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. There's the Ten Commandment. Thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you've hated your brother, you've already committed murder. See, he took it and he elevated it. Okay, but that's not what Andy Stanley is saying. Andy Stanley is saying he sees the Sermon on the Mount as love, joy, peace. Oh, it's just, oh, blessed are those, blessed are those, bless, bless, bless. Okay, but that's not because the Sermon on the Mount basically ends by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven. So uh, I would say, fine, yeah, go put the Sermon on the Mount up there because it takes the Ten Commandments up a notch. But again, that's not how Andy Stanley sees it. He goes on. He says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. John 13, 34, the one commandment doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? But if we're going to create a monument to stand as a testament to our faith, shouldn't it at least be a monument of something that actually applies to us? Basically saying, the Ten Commandments don't apply to us. 
Hear me out. The Ten Commandments are from the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments played a significant role in God's creation of the nation of Israel. See, it was for Israel, not the Gentiles. Wrong. It gave them moral guidelines and helped separate their new nations from their neighbors. So these Ten Commandments don't apply to us. They, they only applied to Israel and only back in the Old Testament. Why then does Romans say, is the law good? Yes, it's holy, righteous, and good. Do, do we then nullify the law? Certainly not. So nowhere can you show me in Scripture that this is what happened. Even Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that word fulfill simply means to accomplish, to do it. And he goes on, this was past of the formal agreement or covenant God created with his people. But Jesus' death and resurrection signaled the end of that covenant and all the rules and regulations associated with it. Jesus didn't issue his new command as an additional commandment to the existing list of commands. He didn't say, here's the 614th law. It's because the Jews, they had 613 laws that they take out of the Torah. Jesus issued his new commandment as a replacement for everything in the existing list. In other words, he's saying, I've got this one commandment, and I am replacing all 613 commands, including the Big Ten. And he goes on. Just as his new covenant replaced the old covenant, Jesus' new commandment replaced all the old commandments. Guys, this is heresy of all heresies. This is of the devil. This is really the spirit of Marcion. Uh, if you do some study of church history, you'll see a guy named Marcion, who, by the way, was branded as a heretic by the church. But Marcion basically had the same exact teaching. He said that the old God, that the God of the Old Testament was this you know harsh guy, but now there's Jesus, and that there was an old and a new, and his Bible really got rid of any of that old and only had some of the new in it. Didn't even have all of the new. But he's basically saying the exact same thing that Marcion did. Remember, we are to consider the goodness of God as well as the severity of God. Andy Stanley is saying, oh, Jesus is love, happiness. He's just a lamb, no lion. He's not going to judge the world, and certainly he's not going to judge by the Ten Commandments because those are old and outdated. No, those are his standard. That's the standard of which God is going to judge through Jesus. You see, the devil is stripping how we identify sin from the church. No wonder the sin or, or the church can't identify sin. If the Ten Commandments are, are null and void, how do you? To define what sin truly is. Paul himself in Romans said, I would not have known what sin was if the law had not said, do not covet. We need to go through the book of Romans as well. Let's move on to verse 18 to wrap it up here. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Guys, again, we're seeing 
faith is the power source for obedience here. Okay, they couldn't enter in because of unbelief. But wait a minute, that's not all it's saying here. It's saying that they didn't obey. Why didn't they obey? Well, because they didn't believe. You see that? Our belief, our faith in Jesus, is what gives us the power to obey. You can't obey if you don't believe. That's important. It's all because of unbelief. And I'm telling you, this is what I'm saying, is that if you go to church and you're not living an obedient life, you're, you're caught up in pornography and you don't hate it, I don't think you truly believe. Because if you truly believed that God is a God that created this universe, He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and He will judge you according to those Ten Commandments, okay? Whether Jesus has them or not, okay? Like I understand I've broken those commandments and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, but that's because I obey God the best I can, and when I don't, I hate it because I believe in Him. And because of my belief, I am covered by His blood. But if you are willfully sinning, I don't think you truly believe God. You've defined God differently than what the Bible defines Him as. Obedience is always associated with belief. And disobedience is always associated with unbelief. That's why he says a tree is judged by its fruit. That's why he says, if you love me, if you believe in me, you will do what I say. Because I am going to empower you to do it. I'm going to be there to, con to, to convict you. The Spirit will convict you. Not the letter of the law, but the Spirit of the law will convict you. Now I know there's going to be people who are saying, oh, you're, you're under the law, you're under the law. Legalism, legalism. Guys, I'm just looking at the scriptures. Uh, again, we're looking at Hebrews here. Hebrews is telling and, and warning and exhorting you. To whom did he say, you're going to hell? You're not entering my rest? Those who don't obey. And why don't they obey? Well, because they don't believe. This is New Testament, and this is exactly what Jesus taught. Somehow we have this idea that, you know, we can take these isolated verses out of Galatians and Romans, take them out of context, and say, oh, Jesus got rid of the law, and Paul tells us that, you know, the law is gone. Well, would Paul teach something that Jesus didn't? Why do Paul's words seem to disagree with Jesus' words? Well, they don't. You're just misunderstanding Paul's words. Okay, I think it's in Corinthians it even says that Paul's words were hard to understand. If you don't take them in context, yeah, they can be. But in context, it lines up with Jesus' words completely. And so, I exhort you today and every day to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Not to see if you're good enough to to earn your way to heaven, not to see if you're good enough to be a Christian. That's a heresy as well. But to examine your heart and ask yourself, do I love my sin more than I love God? Do I hate my sin? 
because those are important questions to ask. Examine yourself to see where your heart is. Because like I said, we're all going to break God's commands. I sin on a daily basis, but I know I'm forgiven because of God's grace, not by my works or even my lack of them. But I know that I'm saved because I hate my sin and I do not live in willful disobedience to God. And now that I know what truth is, I'm going to obey it to the best of my ability through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in me. So, think on that.